Welcome to the Inside Job Podcast. I'm Sean Kopalakis, host of the pod. And this is episode number 24. Of course, the Inside Job Podcast is a conversation with cool people and cool jobs. A little bit of a change up this week as my guest does not work in sports or television, although she has appeared on national TV, the Rachel Maddow Show. It was an honor and a privilege to call up my friend Robin Conrad for a chat about her career path, defending death row inmates and her arguments in front of the United States Supreme Court back in 2015. Robin and I are from the same hometown and have been friends for over 25 years now. That's where our conversation begins this week. Let's roll it. This is so cool. My first high school friend and classmate on the podcast. I've had college friends on, but... Now we're talking about going back to like the late 1980s, maybe even before high school, I guess, at Lake Worth Junior High School. You knew me. I didn't know who you were, but you knew me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we were in class together. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome. Thank you for coming on. This is going to be so much fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. When you meet people for the first time or somebody asks you where you're from or where do you, where did you grow up, what do you say? Because I, I think I, I give a different answer every single time somebody asks me. Sometimes I'll say Lake Worth. Sometimes I'll say Palm Beach County. Sometimes I'll say West Palm Beach or South Florida. Do you say Lake Worth? I don't usually unless the person I know is somebody that's from Florida. So I'll generally either say Southeast Florida or West Palm Beach. Yeah. And of course, instantly everybody says, Ooh, Palm Beach, yeah, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and they, exactly. know, and they think that it's, it's from the, the island of Palm Beach, which then of course I quickly correct them. No, we, well, we, we spent many, many times driving past Mar-a-Lago, right? On oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> the, uh, the story of, of the uh, haunted houses on on Palm Beach Island that we would drive past. Yes, yes, and may have done some st- stupid things around those houses uh, when we were younger. <laughs> How we played the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> Lake Worth, small little suburb, I guess you'd call it of of Palm Beach. That's. And I guess how I describe it, but you know, a little beach town, so so to speak. How do you describe Lake Worth when when you get into telling people that that's where you're actually from? I mean, it is. It's like a small suburb, but it's not really a suburb of a city, right? Because it's not like it's not like West Palm Beach is some big metropolis. Um, so it is. I don't know. I it's really hard to describe, and it's just. It really has the tropical feel. The tagline now is Lake Worth, where the tropics begin. And so when you come into Lake Worth, there is, you know, the sea grape trees and palm trees and all these, you know, it's really overgrown with with a lot of growth since when we grew up and were kids back in the 80s. Yeah. And when when we were growing up and when we were friends and, and going to school together and all that, when... When I interview people on my podcast, especially the sports folks, they seem to always say that they knew exactly what they wanted to do or, or, you know, at least the field that they wanted to be in when they grew up. But that wasn't you. Not at all. And I've listened <laughs> to some of your podcasts and the guests are great. And it that's one of the things that I noticed that everybody was like, I knew from the time I was, you know, 
you know, in elementary school or high school that, that this is what my, you know, kind of career path want, was going to be. And I had no idea and probably still have no idea what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, know, you know, Hey, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're young, you're young still. You may have three careers yeah. ahead of you. I wanted to be a veterinarian. I wanted to be a marine biologist. At one point, I wanted to be a dolphin. I wanted to be a (laughs) screwdriver, like literally just be somebody that screwdrives all day long. So, I mean, it has, I've had a wide variety of interests. As somebody with some time on his hands, I would, uh, I'd be thrilled to find a job that all I did was screwdrive all day. (laughs) That'd, That'd be a lot of fun. So, you graduate from high school and you ended up at, at Boston University BU, but this is 25 years ago, so my memory, or 23 or whatever, my memory may not be exactly correct. You didn't go to BU right away when you graduated. No, I didn't. And yeah. <clears throat> I didn't even want to go to college. Yep, I remember that. So, yep, I graduated. All I wanted to do was move out of the house um, oh. and, you know, play house and live with my boyfriend. And, so I got a job right after I graduated and worked full time starting, I think, I think graduation was like June. So as soon as I graduated and by probably mid July, I was like, Oh my God, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and so at that point, it was too late to really make a plan to go to a four year university. And so I went to the community college, uh, Palm Beach Community College, which I think is now Palm Beach State. Um, it was great because I got to go there for two years. I still worked full time, had a full scholarship, so had no debt after two years of uh, school and then ended up transferring to Boston University and got a full scholarship to BU. So it was a, a definitely a, a different route than some people take, but definitely a very economical route. Yeah, you you sort of fell uh, right into that one, right? I mean, what what uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the master plan all along, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, so you you get to be you, and I remember we were pen pals for a while when you were there back when people used to write letters, right? You remember that and send them in the mail? No. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember writing letters, but I don't remember being pen pals with you. Well, you know, whatever. Like there might have been like one or two letters that we sent back. And forth. <laughs> But anyway, my point being that it was a long time ago, and uh, so right. <laughs> uh, at, at BU, your undergrad, English major, right? Mm-hmm. At that point, yep. yeah, English is like the catch-all of, I have no effing idea of what I want to do, right? <laughs> Re- yeah, it was pretty much, well, I it would take me an extra year to get a degree in marine biology, so I'm going to pick English since I have a two-year scholarship, <laughs> Um, and that's, yeah, I, I was interested in, I had some pretty cool professors and so English it was. And what were you thinking that might be a career at that point? Or were you? Oh, I, no, absolutely not. And I've really never been like, oh, what's going to be my career? It's just been, what do I enjoy and what, what do I want to do, you know, in that regard? And so, <clears throat> With an English degree, I had no idea what I was going to do, and I ended up moving from Boston back to South Florida um, once again to go play house and live with my then-boyfriend who was living in 
South Florida. I really wanted to stay in Boston and sometimes wonder what my life would have been like had I stayed in Boston, but moved back to good old West Palm Beach and ended up working for a few years before heading to law school. The a disclaimer over all this is that you are, a, you know, a genius. You've always been incredibly smart. So I, I've made made a joke about you falling into it or whatever. But like whatever you put your mind to, you were going to succeed and, and do amazing things. And, and it just so happened that you took sort of this circuitous route to, to where you are now. But law school, when, when did you start thinking that you wanted to go that route? So once I graduated from college and started actually working, um, and I worked at a medical manufacturing company um, and was the administrative assistant to the CEO, and he, he was a great first boss to have in the sense that he didn't ever have an, an administrative assistant. And so he was like, you can just do whatever you want. <laughs> and it was a great learning opportunity to see how, in a, you know, a, a smaller company at that time, it was a private company. It was about 150 employees. Um, but the, how the plant worked, how every aspect of a, of a, you know, smaller company works, um, you know, worked with hum- the human resources, with customer service and, um, got to, you know, I would walk around on the floor and talk to all the guys on the shop and kind of was the face for him of the company. But at some point it was like, okay, I want to do something more with, with my life. And, and I started actually doing some research on a guy who was, um, pretty big in the civil rights movement and was a civil rights leader in Florida in the forties, um, and had been pivotal in getting a lot of African-Americans registered to vote. And he and his wife lived in a small town called Mims, Florida. And his name is Harry T. Moore. And at that point, I had never heard of him. And I um, had taken some African-American history classes in, in, in Boston. And so was pretty interested in the subject and just learning more about civil rights and the history of, of race and racism in America. And I just didn't understand why this man who had done a lot of, a lot of amazing things had never, I hadn't heard of him there. I didn't seem to find any research on him. And he ended up being murdered on Christmas night in 1951. He and his wife were asleep and the KKK bombed his house and killed them both. He had, I think, one or two daughters uh, but they happened to not be at the home on Christmas night, so they were not killed. And so I started doing research and went to the town of Mims and went to the library. This was, again, back when the Internet was really just starting, like it was AOL had just come out. And so started doing some research and decided I was going to write like a book about him because I felt like this man's story needed to be told. And as things happen, life happened. And, you know, I kind of put it aside and I gathered some research and gathered some articles and tried to reach out and find, you know, family members as as best as I could. And then one day, it was August of 1999, the Palm Beach Post, which was our paper in our hometown, it said, front cover, Harry T. Moore, why have we never heard of him? And, and there was a professor, I think at FSU, sorry, <laughs> I know you're a gator, had written 
a book about him and was was working on a documentary. And so I was just I was thrilled that somebody told that story that needed to be told. And there's a there's now a PBS documentary about him. It's it's really fascinating and I I would recommend people, you know, learning his story. But I thought, okay, it was kind of a sign that like I needed to do something more with my life and it was time. So I thought about going into social work. Um, and then I decided that maybe a law degree would be the best way to help me, you know, do, do good in the world and affect social change. So that's why I decided that I wanted to go to law school. That's an amazing story that led you to that path. <laughs> wow. So law school, you make that decision. Did you specifically target Howard? Yeah, so much like most of the decisions in my life, I didn't know too much about what I can do to go to law school. <laughs> I mean, I knew I had to take a test, the LSAT. And so I got a little book on the LSAT and, you know, studied at the library after work a couple of times. But I had no idea that, you know, there are people out there that prepare from the time they're young to, you know, go to law school and to prep and to to do all the necessary things. And so I just was like, well, I'm going to go to law school in D.C. because why wouldn't you want to study law in, in you know, our capital? And right. so I came and visited the different law schools here and. I just like Howard just spoke to me. I felt home at Howard. And for for the listeners who don't know, Howard University is a the 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 law school is known for civil rights. Uh Thurgood Marshall, the first um African American Supreme Court justice went there. He also is the one that litigated Brown versus Board of Education, uh the school the school desegregation case that, you know, said separate but equal is inherently unequal. So the the idea of just being in a law school where the whole purpose of the law school's um, history and creation was to to work for underrepresented underrepresented people, particularly black people, and the school is a historically black university, um, which listeners don't know because they can't see me, but I am not black. I am white. Uh, so it was, it was just, it's, a, it's, it's so odd to say this, but I just felt like going to visit the law schools, I felt at home there. It's like a family and it really is like there wasn't the cutthroat competition that you think of at some law schools. People gen genuinely wanted their colleagues and classmates to succeed like everybody wanted to lift each other up and i know that's not the case at some other schools yeah i'm sure that that was maybe the the biggest factor in that decision but you mentioned that it's a historically black college and i wanted to ask you about that because most people think of hbcus as black only schools and so how did that make you think that that wasn't the right place for you because of that? I mean, I'm just fascinated by by the decision that you made. You know, we, we our high school was probably we were about like what half white. So so we had a a a, a large black population. We had a lot of Haitian immigrants. We mm-hmm. had 
um, a lot of Latinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not like, it's not like I grew up in an area where I never saw a person of color. Sure. Um, but I certainly had not been in a situation where I was always the minority. Yeah. But, but it was a fabulous experience. And I mean, it's just the, it's an experience that most people don't get, you know, in yeah. America at least. Yeah. And so we live in still such a white dominated uh, society and culture. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was great to, to kind of see perhaps, you know, I, you become aware of things that you sometimes might not become aware of when you're not the minority. So it was great. You you mentioned how prestigious a university it is, how prestigious a law school it is. Kamala Harris, I didn't know this until I started researching, but um, my senator from the great state of California and, and hopefully maybe a future president of the United States, that she's a Howard alum. And then for my sports audience, I ha- had to look up a sports person, Gus Johnson, who's a fantastic broadcaster. He's a Howard guy. So incredible institution. I'm sure that it was an amazing experience but you didn't just graduate from from Howard Law School. You were the freaking valedictorian of your class. I was. <laughs> I was. And it's uh, like I don't publicly usually talk about that. But we can, <laughs> since you called me out, I just want to say that um, the, this is an interesting experience. Again, me and my ignorance. Of, I was just so excited to be in law school and so excited and like I felt like so honored and privileged to actually have been able to get into law school and you know that I'm at this law school with all of these legal giants that had come before me and created really a, a lot of the laws that have allowed for for the civil rights movement to happen and and you know trained lawyers who've really effectuated changes over the decades and really helped um help move our society in a more progressive way but you know after my first year I had done well and I went to get my transcripts because I was applying for a job and you need your transcripts and again this was kind of before all of it was electronic and I remember the the woman who worked in in the department that, you know, I guess it would have been admission. No, it wasn't. I, where would you go to get your transcript? What was that called? Uh, register? Register's yeah. office? I guess. I don't know. Some, anyway, so I went, to, I went to go get my transcript, and the woman was like, oh, she's like, are you transferring? And I looked, and I was like, why on earth would I transfer? Like... And it didn't even dawn on me until, you know, I probably my third year of law school or so that when people do well, they transfer to perhaps a better school that that they think like they wanted to get into school X, but they didn't get into that school. And so therefore they transfer and go to a different school. It never even crossed my mind. And I and and it was just so odd to me that somebody would ask me would I want to transfer because I I mean I loved Howard and I I still love Howard I mean it's just it's amazing and and to the thought of the fact that somebody thought I would transfer was just absurd to me well I didn't mean to put you on blast about that it's it's it is on your bio <laughs> on uh, the DPIC uh, website so you may want to um, remove that <laughs> 
My yeah, the powers that be said that need there. There's other people that want to boast about me, but as you know, I'm not one to I talk too much about myself. I know, I know. Pulling pull <laughs> teeth sometimes with you, but um, you're a badass. We've we've established that. So so you graduate with your law degree, and what's next? You obviously had this mission of you said you know originally you thought maybe social work or or some some sort of social justice type career ahead of you, and where where did that lead you to at first? So I ended up for not quite a year working here in D.C. at a law firm, and it was a decision that I went back and forth on because I did not want to go into the private sector and wanted to do, um, like I said, civil rights. I got interested in criminal law, which I don't think we can really have a conversation about civil rights and, and not talk about, um, you know, our criminal legal system. So, and I really was interested in doing criminal work and so criminal defense in particular and indigent defense. So I ended up, you know, going to this law firm for a year where great law firm, Hogan Levels, it was called Hogan Hartson back then, but I did primarily pro bono work. And so what that is, is free work for people who can't afford it. Um, and they have a great pro bono department where they staff a, a pro bono apartment, department full-time with partners and, you know, a senior level associates, junior level associates. Um, and so I had the opportunity to work on my first death penalty case there, worked on some other cases that were representing poor people who, you know, their social security rights were being denied. Um, I worked on an asylum case for a woman who was, had come over here and fled e- Iraq and she was Kurdish and um, her family was in danger and um, so worked on getting her asylum and just worked on some really interesting issues, worked on some taxicab discrimination issues, which was really big in, in D.C. and New York. If you remember, I think the, the mm-hmm. big one was where was it Danny Glover that tried to get the cab and he didn't couldn't get it one. I don't know. Do you remember that? No. OK. <laughs> uh, there was it was a, it was it was some somebody famous that like would stand on the street corner and cabs would pass passed them by because they were black and wouldn't pick them up. And, and D.C. had that same issue. So worked on an array of issues there at the law firm related to, you know, helping poor people. And take me then through the progression of your career. So you said that was a year at that law firm. And mm-hmm. wh- where did you go? And next? then I had the absolute great honor to have a not only a judicial clerkship, which for for those folks, listeners who aren't lawyers or in the legal field at all, they're judges who sit on the bench and in particular in, on the federal court um, hire people who are usually right, right out of law school or a few years out to serve generally like a one-year, two-year term to be what's called a judicial law clerk. You basically get to help the judge with the different decisions that are being made. And so I had the honor to clerk for a judge who was and still is on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So that's a federal appellate court um, 
that is over Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Michigan. Um, so those are the four states that the appeals come out of. And um, he was based out of Detroit, and he actually um, is celebrating his 50th year on the bench. He's also a Howard alum, Damon J. Keith. He's a legal giant. He has done so much. His his rulings from the bench when he was first a, a district court, a trial court judge, had a lot of civil rights cases come before him um, with regard to racial discrimination, employment discrimination, um, school desegregation, and just had such an impact. And um, had it was an amazing experience. So I did that for a year. Um, and then ended up getting into what I call, what we call in the, in, in this field, capital habeas work. Which is death penalty cases and, and things of that nature, right? Yes. And it's, uh, so capital habeas work, capital is obviously the capital punishment, so death penalty. Habeas is a specific legal term where we, we represent people in their, last round of appeals before they either lose and are executed by the government or win and get a new trial or a new sentencing. Yeah, you, you've you been defending the defenseless, those without the means to fight for themselves. And, you know, we're not just talking traffic tickets and community service. This is people's lives on the line. Why go into that line of work? I, I kind of have always felt like I'm want to represent the underdog, people that society has thrown away for whatever reason or another. And when I was in law school, I I met the 100th person exonerated from death row. Um, And it was a guy named Ray Crone, who actually was innocent um, and convicted and sentenced to death. Um, He ended up being exonerated. I think he spent 10 plus years in prison. And I remember hearing him talk and just learning about the death penalty and what an impact it had on me and how unfair and unjust the death penalty is in our society and how it's really about how much money you have, where you come from, where, and and when I say where you come from, like where you actually are located and, you know, often what what color your skin is, what color the skin of the victims are. And so to me, the learning more about the death penalty and the way it worked and that this is the ultimate punishment that the government take against its citizens, I thought, wow, this is just something that that was calling to me. And um, when I started doing it, just learning so much um, about not just about the law, the law is extremely challenging. It's very complicated, complex, and it's a very politically heated issue. But oftentimes, the people that I represent have been failed by everybody in the system um, that, you know, whether it's family members, whether a lot of them, you know, have been in various programs, foster care programs, they've been abused physically, sexually, emotionally, They've been failed by their prior attorneys. A lot of times, if they had a trial attorney that actually did what needed to be done, they wouldn't be in the position that they, that they are. And so to have somebody 
say, you're worth something and I'm going to fight for you. You know, I can't tell you how, how many clients I've had that have just, you know, they've never had that before in their lives. Yeah. It's absolutely awe-inspiring to, to think about what, what you do. Let's take a break and we'll come back to, to this. I have a bunch more questions that I want to get into, but I like to do some off-topic stuff in the podcast where we get away from your career and job and we just have a little bit of fun. So I call it three. Oh, good. Sp- I always, I always need fun. <laughs> yes. Yes. Let's inject a little bit of fun and we'll get back to, to the other stuff in a minute, but it's called three spree. I throw out three topics. You come up with three things about each topic. So there's threes. That's clever, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, is that fir- some sports analogy? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, it is actually. Um, <laughs> first one currently live in DC. Obviously we've established that you went to Howard university in DC. We've established that um, you've lived there for many years and had to entertain friends and family all the time when they roll through and they want to do all the touristy sightseeing stuff. So when you get first timers who are rolling through, what are um, they don't have to be like, you know, the three most important, like, you know, Lincoln Memorial, Washington Monument and, and Arlington. But what are like three can't miss experiences that you tell people to go do? And I apologize because I do live in D.C. and there's often sirens going on in the background. I think this is just a regular siren. We get the motorcades going through a lot here in D.C. with somebody, you know, important and it blocks the entire road. But um, yeah, this is just an ambulance. Sorry about that. Um, so the thing that I would say visitors need to come see, and it's only been open for less than a year, is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Um, so that was opened in, I think it was at the end of September because I had just moved here um, for the opening, um, right before the opening. And <clears throat> It's an amazing museum. I have only been once. It's really hard to get into still, um, but it's just phenomenal. It's a it's an amazing building. I definitely would recommend that. Uh, for people who are adults, I would take them to go see my favorite bartender at Steel Plate, Kenny. And I have. <laughs> like I've had a few people come to town in the last few months, and so we always go and see Kenny. He's the most awesome bartender. He's, you know, fun conversation, great time. Steel Plate is a is a fun little neighborhood bar. And then the third place, you know, I, I'd have to say the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. I I can't avoid that. Living in D.C. and being a lawyer and um, being a little bit of an, a, a law nerd, um, I just think the Supreme Court is a really uh, cool place to go and visit if you're in D.C. We will get to the Supreme Court in a few minutes. I was going to do one of these topics about like your three top bars. You know, you brought up the bartender that that's a must see when you're in DC. I was going to do that, uh, but I, I didn't. I left it off. So I'm def- steel plate, right? I'm uh, Next time I'm in DC, I'm definitely going. Second topic, going back to when you were a young girl, you are the biggest Duran Duran fan. I know, maybe the biggest one on the planet. You've met the band countless times how many times met simon Lebon, had drinks with them stalked them after concerts right <laughs> i have i have <laughs> i don't know if i'd say had drinks with him i lurked at the bar and like 
you know, then kind of felt a little awkward because I'm like, gosh, I really don't know this person. And here I am like, you know, invading his space and his mom was there. It was all very odd, but. <laughs> so you can take this uh, in, in any direction, maybe your three favorite Duran Duran moments or concerts, or maybe your three, what are the three best Duran Duran songs? You know, everybody knows the, the radio hits, but what are for the, for the, biggest fan on the oh planet. my goodness <laughs> the only three i know um okay so secret october is a great b-side song it's amazing love it i think they played it on one of their tours it's, it's been a while i yeah i've seen them i don't know 30 40 times most recently on new year's eve uh they played here they just opened a casino across the river and they played at the casino oh gosh still as good I would as ever say, I'm sure. oh go ahead still as good as ever i'm sure yeah i mean they're getting a little <laughs> bit up there you know i mean simon is 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 going to be 60 next year and for those of you who don't know simon lebon is the lead singer of duran duran what else? There's just so many great moments <laughs> with Duran Duran. I'd have to say the first, the first time that I did meet them, I was had just graduated high school. This is a good story. I'll I'll tell this quick story and then we'll leave it at that. Okay. The I almost missed graduation from high school, which I didn't really even want to go anyways. But my parents were really wanting me to grad to go watch me graduate because they're like, we might never see you graduate again. Uh, <laughs> The irony, right? But we, ha this is again back in the day. Remember when you have used to have to camp out for tickets yeah. if you wanted good tickets. Of course. And so I went. I think, I think I went. I don't know that I camped out all night, but definitely went at like three in the morning to the Eckerd's or Rite Aid that was selling the tickets, and I got in line, and we had rehearsal for graduation that morning at like 10 and the tickets went on sale at 10. So I certainly wasn't going to, you know, miss getting good seats for graduation rehearsal. And they said that if you weren't there, that you wouldn't be able to graduate. And so I ended up calling from a payphone and saying that I got in a car accident. <laughs> I remember this. And that I was going to be delayed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I ended up getting tickets, great tickets, uh, good seats, and still managed to um, wear graduation. my cap and gown. Yeah, and and made my parents proud. So, I was at that graduation. I came, I came, and watched you guys. Man, yeah, Duran Duran. That's I for till I till the day I die, I will never not think of you when I hear or see Duran Duran. Last topic. Yeah. Last topic. This is normally a sports focused podcast, but I like to branch out and do other people and, and, and I've always wanted to have you come on, but I got to bring in a little bit of sports for my sports guys who are listening. So you're obviously a huge sports fan. Huge. <laughs> <laughs> I like basketball. So I'm going to wizard. You. Go wizard. Yeah. Yeah. They have a they have a really good player who's a who's a Gator on their team. So Bradley Beal, you can root hard for him. Oh, okay. Uh, so three sports moments or or three athletes that you've enjoyed rooting for or games you've enjoyed going to as as a huge diehard sports fan. 
Okay, so I have to completely give a shout out. I love my Wizards and Etan Thomas, who used to play for the Wizards, number 36. I couldn't tell you what his, what do you call that? Where you're, like what his role is in the game. His position. <laughs> yeah, That's he, it. he was a pow- power, power forward, power forward center. Yeah, I, I don't know really what that means. Still love basketball. Um, <laughs> first first time I went to see a basketball game, I was working at the law firm, and one of the vendors gave my friend, who is a paralegal, some free tickets. She's like, let's go. She'd never been. We go to the game, and I'm sure the man sitting next to us was so annoyed because we kept asking him, well, what's that mean, and what are they doing? <laughs> and so, But I really did fall in love with the game. I mean, as much as you can when you don't really know all the rules. Um, but, but Atan Thomas, who is, I, I enjoyed getting to know kind of him as an athlete, but also him as a social activist. And yeah. he was pretty outspoken about the death penalty being wrong, but also really outspoken on other social justice issues. And he continues to be, um, really outspoken and is actually working on a book he's my friend on Facebook. And so (laughs) I see what he's doing from time to time. And he's been really um, outspoken about Black Lives Matter. And he's been interviewing different people in, in the field of sports about activism, people who have been, you know, social activists, while also being an athlete. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two, I'm going to have to just give a shout out to Dale Murphy. And the only reason I probably know who he is is because of you. <laughs> he was one of your your favorites from the Braves. Yes. Number three is number, that was that his number? Number three. Number three. I went to a, wow. The, the Braves are in uh, Los Angeles playing the Dodgers, and I went to the game last night and wore my Dale Murphy number three jersey. That's awesome. <laughs> See, you like that's I don't remember the fact that you wrote me. We were pen pals when I was in college, but I remember Dale Murphy was number three because of you. So, Um, and then let's see, third, third thing about, you know, I'd have to say my, my sister who was in love with George Brett. Um, So I feel like I probably know more athletes from like the eighties when I was a kid. Yeah. (laughs) And so um, she just absolutely loved him. And I made fun of her because remember he got hemorrhoids and did the preparation age commercial. <laughs> so that's my knowledge of sports here. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm good friends with Mark Gubaza who played on the Royals with George Brett and he's good friends with George Brett. So at some point, maybe I'll be able to introduce Kelly, your sister to, to George Brett, uh, in some sort of cosmic way that it'll all come together for her. So she would love that. <laughs> All right. Well, that was fun. Now back to the the job talk. So you you get into this line of work, and that has taken you across the country. You you've been fighting for and, and defending people all across this country. We don't need to go into you know specifics, but kind of a brief overview of the places you've been and sort of the differences um, between certain areas of the country when it comes to fighting for these clients and just the the perceptions of the death penalty in, in different areas of the country? So I have worked, um, I started working in Alabama, which is, you know, very much the deep south, and and then worked for quite a few years in Arizona, um, which also is very much uh, a red state and pro-death penalty. The, 
I've also represented people in various states, even though I wasn't living in those states. Um, but the disparities that you see, I think I mentioned earlier, there's some geographic disparities. So depending on like count, what county you're in, you'll see, especially if there's a particular prosecutor who is, um, has been elected and is really hungry for prosecuting capital cases. Um, it's, as I mentioned, it's very political. There's been, you know, sometimes judges will run for re-election on how many death sentences they impose. In Alabama, that was a big one. Wow. But, but it just, overall, like I said, the people who end up getting sentenced to death and who are on death row in our country are poor, um, don't come from backgrounds that, you know, that most people come from. Yeah, there's, uh, we'll, we'll get into to the death penalty debate and, and the people who who support it and why and, and, and have you do that in a second. But I wanted to talk about the, the main event, so to speak, the, the Supreme Court case in 2015 that you argued, Glossop versus Gross, right? Yes. A case about the state of Oklahoma's use of a particular drug, midazolam. Is that right? Is that the right pronunciation? Correct. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can you can read about this incredibly disturbing case. Just Google it. There's there were stories in every single major paper across the country. But briefly, what was the case about, and and why were you involved with it? So the case originated after a really horrifically botched execution happened in 2014 in April, April 29th, 2014. Um, a prisoner by the name of Clayton Lockett was executed in Oklahoma, but his execution went horribly wrong. And he ended up waking up during the execution. What's supposed to happen is somebody is supposed to be put basically under, so deeply anesthetized so that then they just to witnesses look like they're falling asleep while then two additional drugs are injected. One that is the person so they can't move or express anything. And then the last drug um, is a large dose of a drug that immediately causes cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest and stops the heart. Um, with him, there was problems and there was the first drug, the various A lot of people had said this drug's not going to work the way they wanted it to work. It's not going to deeply anesthetize them, um, the prisoners. And so he ended up waking up and started writhing and, you know, grimacing and speaking. And the state ended up closing the curtains. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, he died. And so it was a huge deal. A lot of, a lot of media around it and, I was representing at the time a a prisoner on Oklahoma's death row and the public defender's office there, who was also representing a lot of people, we got together and we said, you know, we have to raise some, some constitutional claims on behalf of our clients. And so we brought a lawsuit challenging, again, challenging this particular drug that was being used and use this execution as well as some other problematic executions as examples, had experts and had a had a three-day hearing under really, really short time constraints because we had a few other clients who were facing imminent execution. And 
it's weird for people who don't know anything about the law, how this all works, but it happened in a pretty short time frame. We went, we had a three day hearing at the end of December and by, um, mid January, we were already in the United States Supreme Court. So we had gone from the trial level court to the Court of Appeals to the United States Supreme Court within um, a couple weeks. What was that like getting ready to to preparing that case and getting ready to argue it, especially given the condensed time frame? Well, just to be clear, the before the case gets argued, the the Supreme Court does not hear every case. So the the Supreme Court will only basically review and hear oral argument and decide the merits of a case in around roughly 1% of the cases that come before it. So sure. the 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 couple week time frame that we had was just preparing the case to ask the United States Supreme Court to actually right. hear our case. Um so they we had asked for a stay of execution for one of our clients and asked the court to hear our case. Um, the court denied the stay of execution. Um, we got a dissent from four justices. You need a majority of five in order to grant a stay. Um, and w- our client was executed. And the following week after the execution, the court decided that it was going to hear the case, um, which seems odd, right? Like, why would the justices allow this person to be executed when they are going to hear the case. And so we don't know why, why they wouldn't have stayed this person's execution and then agreed to hear the case. Uh, So from the time they agreed to hear the case, which was the end of January, the oral argument was then the end of April. So it was exactly one year to the day of the botched execution that the case was argued in the United States Supreme Court. Right. And so, like you said, less than 1% of cases actually are selected to then be heard. So you, you cleared that hurdle, but unfortunately did not get the stay. But so now you're preparing to argue this case in, in front of the court, which that's historic in, in itself. Something, uh, an amazing honor for, for you and for, for the attorneys involved. What what was what was your preparation like for that? How were you, how were you feeling? What, what, you know what, what what were you what were those months leading up? Those four months leading up to that like? Well, it was very very stressful, <laughs> really? to say the least. <laughs> um, but I had you know we had a huge we had a, a team of lawyers and and you know when we were we were litigating this case, you know having the hearing in the district court, um, you know there were. A couple lawyers from the the public defender's office that we were primarily um, handling this, um, and it was you know once a case goes before the Supreme Court, then everybody wants to help, and everybody wants sure. you know you have a lot of uh, a lot of big law firms that have Supreme Court practice groups, and so they want to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, we ultimately ended up working with with. Um, as co-counsel with one of the law firms and they were great uh just amazing at at just helping we did moots which for for listeners who don't know what a moot is in legal terms a moot is um where it's basically a mock argument and so we would get together people in the community law professors former um supreme court clerks who would pretend to be the justices and ask questions 
and they were grueling. Um, and we did that, you know, three, four, five times, just constantly outlining, constantly thinking of facts, constantly trying to, I mean, you literally have to think everything that could potentially come up. I mean, and it's, and it's really a situation where you have to commit everything to memory. You know, the Supreme Court doesn't want you flipping through anything <laughs> while you're up there and you, you only have a half an hour. And so it's a really short amount of time to convince the highest court in our land why your clients are right. <laughs> and it was a, it was a complicated issue with science and medicine and yeah. just, just a lot, a lot of, lot of stuff to the specifics of the case. The day of rolls around. Can you take me through that day? What that day was like? What that experience was like? Waking up, getting getting ready, getting arriving at the court, walking in. The justices come out and are seated. Like what? <laughs> what was that like? It's amazing. Yeah. So so the court. So I had set my alarm for probably like five in the morning. And I think I woke up on my own at four 30, which is probably one of the only times I've ever woke up without my <laughs> alarm. And I probably spent an hour, hour and a half, just going through my argument, mm -hmm. talking out loud, looking at myself in the mirror. Um, and then I got dressed, you know, put on the suit and it's very formal. Sure. The Supreme court tells you what colors to wear oh, on its wow. website. <laughs> and so got ready, went to the court with my co-counsel. And when you get there, you get checked in, go through security, and then they have a lawyer's lounge. So you can, you know, kind of wait up there and you're just kind of sitting around waiting and waiting. We probably got to the courthouse. It was probably around 8.30 or 8.45. And they, they call cases at the court starts session at 10 a.m. And so waiting in the lawyer's lounge, you know, going to the bathroom, making sure like, I'm like, Oh, what if, cause you can't get up to go to the restroom when you're arguing a case. And, um, for those of you who don't know, the Supreme court also announces opinions sometimes before they hear argument. So that particular morning they were announcing some opinions. So I had to sit for 15, 20, 30 minutes and listen to them talk about, read the opinions in the other cases. And I was just like, come on, you know, call my case already. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very, you're very, very close. It's very intimate. Like I was probably five feet away from the justices. Wow. It's, you're very close. So up close, personal, they're right there on top of you. You know, I could, you know, almost touch Chief Justice Roberts. Um, and so you just sit there and wait. It's very formal, very quiet. And then they call your case. You stand up, you go to the podium, which is literally two feet from you. And then you start talking. Wow. That's how, how did you deal with, I'm sure there, I'm sure there were nerves. Were, were you intimidated? Were you, I don't know. You know, literally every single day leading up to the argument, I was super nervous and like I'd go through my moments of feeling really good and then feeling, oh my gosh. But the morning of, for whatever reason, I just, I felt like, all right, it's time to do this. And, and that's how, 
that's how it's been like argued in front of other courts and other panels and um the most like i argued in front of 11 judges in the in the ninth circuit and so Mm -hmm. but but it's different right when it's the united states supreme court and and so it was as soon as i stood up um i i felt like okay i've got this although then they started it was a pretty pretty aggressive bench I think uh, Dahlia Lithwick from Slate said it was the most horrendous day in court that she's ever seen. <laughs> they were, it was the very last day of the term. They had just heard oral argument in the marriage equality cases two days prior. Right. So, um, and, and you never know which justices actually voted to grant um, review of the case because they only need four justices to grant review of a case. So they needed five to stay the first person's execution that didn't get stayed, yeah. but only four to grant review. So it could have been the justices who ultimately were, were, were in the majority and we ended up losing the case five to four. So they could have granted review so that they could write this opinion to, you know, clarify the law or, or something like that as opposed to the justices who wanted to grant relief. so Right. It's always kind of fascinating to, to think about how the vote would break down in that situation. Arguing in front of these justices, and, and you said it before that, you know, you're a nerd when it comes to this kind of stuff, and I'm not anywhere near what you are, but but I love following it too. And to, to get up and to, to be looking into the eyes while you're making this argument of on the right, you know, justices like Alito and and Thomas and Scalia and and then on the left with with justices like, you know, Ginsburg, who is is a hero to to so many of us and Sotomayor and Kagan and and Breyer. I mean, it just blows me away. It it does still to this day, two two years later, when I whenever I think about what you did, it was it's it's amazing. I would have been totally fangirling over over Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> rbg the notorious rbg right mm-hmm. yeah looking and i read i read the the full transcript and i thought you did a phenomenal job and and um you know again this goes back to the to our discussion earlier you don't want to talk about yourself or say how you know how, how good you were but looking back what what are you are you are you proud of 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 uh, that day or, or is there something that that really stands out for you that that was memorable and well I, I I think I don't know if proud's the word I it was a really tough argument in the sense that there was a lot more going on that was way be, beyond the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. You so, read, if you read the transcripts or even really any of the stories about the case, you can like freshening up for this. I read something that, that was on Think Progress and you really get that sense of it in some of these recaps of just, you know, kind of what the the points that Alito and Scalia really wanted to make about the death penalty and, and activists fighting against it and things like that that didn't have anything really to do with your particular case. Right. I mean, it had nothing to do. So our case, as I mentioned, was about whether this particular drug was going to work in the way that the state intended it to work. And we had multiple experts, anesthesiologists, pharmacists who said, 
no, based on the way this drug is made, it's not going to do, it, it just doesn't act the way they want it to act. Um, and so, you know, in, in, if this were not a death penalty case, we probably would have won. We had the, the experts on our side, the science on our side. Um, but, but the questions that, that came out were, you're just literally committing, this is a guerrilla war against the death penalty. That was the language that Alito used. Yeah. Um, and, and accused, you know, accused me and my clients of, of making other drugs unavailable. Um, because there's been an issue over the se- last several years that a lot of pharmaceutical companies are coming out and saying we don't want our drugs used in executions because we're a you know, we we're a health provider we provide drugs to help people save their lives not end them um, and so that's you know to to then blame a prisoner on death row who all our clients are saying is the way they're going to do this is going to be cruel and unusual punishment. Um, there was a lot of other stuff going on. Um, and I think like thinking about it, the, the most disturbing thing was talking about the best way to kill somebody. I, at one point, Justice Alito asked me, well, if, if a person's properly anesthetized and they can't feel it, it would be okay to burn them at the stake? Um, which was kind of, the argument of what the drug would feel like you're being burned from the inside if you can in fact feel the final drug that's being used. So it it was you know I don't know. I still it still bothers me it bothers me that that there's just this desire to to I guess maintain the system that I've come to to believe in in working in the death penalty um, arena for the last, I guess, 12 years that there are so many problems with it. And I don't, I don't understand why we as a society and human beings are are doing this to other human beings. I, I know that some of the people who have been convicted have committed horrible, awful, awful acts. And obviously I don't condone any of, of those actions. Um, but I don't think that the solution is that the government chooses to then um execute its own citizens yeah and and for anybody listening if if you if you didn't at the time or you don't remember google google this case and and read some of the the stories that were written after the after it and and see some of these quotes and and that's what that that was i remember right that day or the next day i probably didn't reach out that day but i was just so proud of you for going toe-to-toe with what what i thought was just despicable language and and the the track that they had sort of taken the argument you know alito and and had taken the argument towards and so if you, if you haven't people are listening if you haven't google it and and read it it's it's pretty interesting stuff we've gone a long time and so i want to let you go but i want to have one last discussion about the death penalty just from a standpoint of i'm against it but I, I have friends and, and family and people who say that there's confessed killers. There's those with overwhelming evidence that, that they did committed some sort of atrocity. Those people deserve to die. And, and so that's why we should have the death penalty. What, what is your argument against that belief and that rationale? Well, first off, let me say, you know, I work for an organization 
I don't do direct representation. I work for the Death Penalty Information Center, and our organization does not take a moral standpoint on the death penalty. We don't, we're not pro, we're not con. We just um, look at the facts and analyze what's happening with um, with the death penalty. And the, the thing, and, and this is me speaking as Robin, an individual, not Robin with the Death Penalty Information Center, Absolutely. but the thing that I've come to learn and um, really believe is that the death penalty is a policy decision. It's a it's a system that we've had in the United States since, you know, since before we have became the United States, but it's a system that it does not work. And it, as I mentioned earlier, it is used against the most vulnerable members of society. And to me, it's not about an individual case where we can say, well, in this case, this person's confessed, which there are have been a lot of exonerations where people have confessed, right. just FYI. Right. Um, or we know without a doubt this person committed this this heinous crime. And it's not about, A, it's not about each individual person, but it's also about what do we as a society, where do we want to go? What do we want to do with, with individuals? Where are we failing these people? And why did these people who commit these how did they get from point A to point B and what can we do earlier on in our society, in our systems to prevent these things from happening? And so it, some of it is, you know, sometimes you're just going to fundamentally disagree on things, you know, that I, I find that more and more lately is there's just a way that people want humanity to go, you know, how, how we want to live as human beings, how we want to treat each other, where we, what we want to think about, how we want to spend our lives doing what we're doing. And with, with the death penalty, I, again, I can't tell you, you know, one client who had an absolutely great privileged upbringing, everything was roses and nothing went wrong in that person's life. And they just, you know, went and killed a bunch of people that it just doesn't happen. There, there are failures and, and we as a society, I think need to look at why are these things happening and what can we do to prevent them from happening? But committing state sanctioned murder is not going to prevent this from happening in the future. So, yeah, those are, those are great insights and it's appalling to me. I, uh, I will say, I, I will say, you know, why I'm against it. I mean, it, it, it's just appalling to me that, that the United States is lumped in with China, Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, that, that those are the countries that execute the most people. The majority of executions take place in, in, in those countries throughout the world and that most of the of Western civilization and, you know, countries that are our allies don't practice this anymore and and why we do is just it's baffling to me but yeah well and there's i'm not even going to go get into it but there's a huge racist component to the death penalty and the history of it is just for those interested i i suggest going to eji.org equal justice initiative uh, in alabama brian stevenson who's the executive director has done tremendous work over the past decades to, you know, really tell the true narrative of the history of not just racism, but lynching and the death penalty in America and and how it has been used and 
to me, it's it's just a system that needs to go away. Yeah. Robin, thank you so much for coming on. This was an awesome conversation. I enjoyed it so much. I've preached it already, but I admire you so much, and I'm so proud of you. So thank you for com- coming on and sharing these stories. Well, it was my it was my honor, and I hope uh, I hope we haven't bored people too much. We did throw in a little bit of sports. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't boring at all. This is fascinating. I, I'm uh, this is going to be one of my most listened to podcasts, I'm sure. So, thank you. It was great catching up to you. We'll we'll talk soon. Yeah. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. That'll do it for episode twenty four. If you liked it, you can check out the previous 23, any of them, on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Much appreciated. Until next time, pop the trunk.